Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peter. And this is episode 19 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this, our episode 19, we are going to be spending the entirety of the episode talking about a fascinating and interesting and very timely subject. And that subject is, of course, the internationals, uh, the internationals for the CMA uh, Bible quizzing program. And for a lot of this, Scott, of course, has a tremendous amount of experience uh, with internationals. Uh, so, Scott, how many times did you attend internationals as a quizzer? Twice. Twice. And you coached at least once or twice, right? I coached or um, assi- uh, head coached or assistant coached three times total. Ah, very cool. I have never been to internationals because I was never a quizzer. Uh, well, sorry, I've never been to internationals as a quizzer. Uh, because I never was a quizzer, but I've been to internationals as a coach. Uh, and so that was, uh, of course, a tremendous amount of fun. But uh, so, Scott, why don't you take it away and kind of walk us through what kind of happens at internationals and kind of the things people should be looking out for? Yeah, so we're going to start off by talking about the format of internationals and how it might be different from um, other meets that quizzers have experienced. And my perspective is going to be of a PNW perspective. Um, I'm not quite quite sure the exact format of meets in other districts. I do have some anecdotes, but we'll kind of compare it to PNW district meets. Internationals has 12 prelims, which is kind of, that's a lot. Like within PNW, we have six at every meet, and even at district champs, we have eight. Um, A lot of other districts have three prelims. Back when I quizzed in PNW, a district meet had three prelims. So 12 prelims is very many, and they happen over two and a half days, and it's I think it's a wonderful idea to have that many prelims because you're able to come back from difficult meets, difficult meets, difficult quizzes, and uh, it gives it gives enough time for the best teams to identify themselves. So a bad quiz will not completely sink you. So I really like the number of prelims, number of teams. There's generally been around 24-ish teams for the past few years. I'm not sure how many there were when I quizzed. There might have been 30, but they're kind of it kind of fluctuates between 21, 22, 23, and 27, um, but it's been in that 22, 23, 24 range for the last few years. And it's almost perfect because with 12 prelims, you can have potentially 24 unique opponents in those 12 prelims. And the whoever makes the draw has done a really good job um, to have everyone quizzing every other team, if possible, and to not face a team twice, if possible. And if it is necessary to face another team twice, that's kept to a minimum. So you have to face all of your opponents at one time or another, and I think that's a really cool aspect of it, which is something very different from a district meet. You may be rooting to face certain teams and avoid other ones, and that's not really the case in internationals. You've got to face every single other team at the meet. Another difference from PNW meets is that there are XYZs at internationals. And internationals might be the most appropriate meet to have XYZs because the difference between prelims and semifinals and consolations is so great. And great not in the competition level, but in the reward level. So at internationals, it's, you really want to make the final nine and then see what happens. And so making the semifinals nine is a big deal. And the XYZs provide... In essence, a 13th prelim for teams ranked 7th through 15th um, to distinguish themselves. So if you're in the top six, you don't have to compete in XYZs. You're already in the top nine. 
Um, but if you're team 7 through 15, you're, you have to compete against your closest competition in a seeded manner um, to see if you can hang on and keep your, your place. And I think there are some aspects of XYZs that are really, really cool in that if after 12 prelims, team 7, 8, and 9 are separated by a point, they all get an extra quiz against really similar competition and, to see if they can hang on. And it's incredibly pressure-packed, but that's part of the competition to see how you perform under those sorts of situations. So why do they call it XYZs? I am not sure. I think if you look in the rule book, there are a bunch of brackets created and seeding scenarios just for meets. You know, like, do you want three prelims with eight teams? And all of those are kind of variableized into Team A, Team AB, Team AAC. Uh, and these quizzes were just labeled XYZ. And I think maybe that's why people just call them XYZ, because that's what the rulebook labeled them as. I don't know if there's a section titled XYZ quizzes, but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point someone was just writing the rulebook and called called these quizzes that, and it stuck. But after XYZs, the meet continues with very, very normal semifinals and consolation brackets that we're used to within PNW. Um, There's a few different potential formats for those brackets, but I... I'm almost positive they use the exact same format that we do as far as which of the nine teams get seeded into quiz A and quiz B and quiz C and then how it proceeds from there. And then there's a normal consolation A bracket, so that'll take care of teams 10 through 18. And then however many teams are left, 19th to the end, uh, they compete in a kind of a consolation B bracket that really has to be fashioned anew each year depending on how many teams there are at the meet. I think they did something really clever. Nope, I'm mixing it up with Great West. Uh, at a, since I'm on the topic, at Great West we had, I believe, 20 team. No, we had just enough teams that it would would have been awkward to have a bracket of like two teams or three teams because they would have just quizzed quizzed against themselves the whole time in consolation. And so they came up with a an elaborate double elimination style bracket that I thought was quite clever and quite fair to everyone and kind of maximized both fairness and fun, so that was pretty awesome. At Internationals, there's four quiz rooms that usually goes down to three once you hit the brackets, Um, so pretty similar to our meets. And then as far as equipment, there are benches in every single room, and there's also another cool thing, which is scoreboards in every single room. And there are these old, kind of old-looking, but they're electronic scoreboards that are controlled manually by the scorekeeper, but they are connected to the benches. And so your little light comes on. Um, like if you're on team, the team on the left and you're on seat one, if when you jump, a little one comes on. And so the quizzers will sometimes, before the question is read, like jump on their seat so they can, and then look over their shoulder kind of behind them and see their little one or two or three or four going on and off, on and off. And then it's also something that the audience can. So I, I think jump, jump seats where the quizzers can see the point of their jump visually is a really nice feature, both for the quizzers and for the audience. So that's kind of the general format of the competition of internationals. Now, getting into some differences between, some further differences between internationals and some of the meets that we're most used to, in internationals, almost every district has a five-person team. It's very rare to see a four-person team, and you almost never see a three-person team. And that changes a lot of things because there's always subs and there's the possibility for fifth-person bonuses. There's probably a lot more third- and fourth-person bonuses, both because all the quizzers are very good and because there's more 
quizzers on each team than we're used to at a district meet. So that changes a lot of the dynamics. You could be up 80 points on question 17, and at a district meet, when the top quizzers have quizzed out, you kind of feel safe. But at internationals, one error in error points plus a third or fourth person bonus from another team, and that gap can close very, very, very fast. The jump speeds are also different. They're faster than district meets. The jump speeds are actually quite comparable to the Great West meet, um, but you're usually talking every single question with a reference, so a chapter verse reference or a quote, every quizzer is pushing that edge on, can I get a mouth shape on a verse number less than 20? Because at that point, they consider it to be a foregone conclusion that they get it right. Now, they don't always, but um, that's their goal, is to win the jump and know the verse number and then take it from there. So that's kind of the speed on those. Multiple answers are usually less than a syllable. Interrogatives and chapter ref- chapter references are both in the one and three quarters to three syllables range. And so and situations and finish questions are both usually about a syllable. Um, sub two for sure. And so those are those speeds are crazy and they're they're often intimidating to a quizzer the first time that you experience them. And I think it's a really it's a changing experience to either be a quizzer at internationals or purely observing and just watch a lot of quizzing. And then you start to see the qualities of the quizzers that get questions right, the qualities of the quizzers that don't, um, what quizzers are doing to win jumps. And it's, it's a much different look at quizzing than I think we're used to at the district level. And it's really cool. Another difference is that most teams have uniforms and they have a, a uniform for every single so they're in uniform for every single quiz, and they often have a couple different uniforms throughout the meet. And by uniform, I don't mean like a jersey, like we're most accustomed to with sports teams, but they're coordinated outfits that they wear, whether it's polo shirts or T-shirts or other things. Um, and that's kind of a distinctive, special thing about internationals. They get Each team can be creative and give, them, give themselves a little bit of uni- uniqueness in their uniforms. And years ago, each team used to also have a banner. So they would make some sort of banner out of fabric that represented their district, and they would bring it to every single quiz and then hang it up on the wall behind the benches. And so it was kind of like your team flag, and those were always behind the teams when they quizzed, and there was the scoreboard. And it was there was a cool amount of fanfare about it, and I think those sorts of traditions or, or rituals... Um, kind of make it fun. And then also at internationals, because the meet happens over about a week, there's a talent show in the middle of it. And so it's cool to see your fellow competitors display their talents, whether it's um, through music or through acting or through something else. That's a fun part. And I mean, those talent shows, uh, I, I remember that. I mean, these were genuine, talented people. <laughs> I mean, some of, some of the talents that were shown off were uh, quite impressive. Yeah, and it's, it's cool because... You know everyone is a quizzer, but it's nice to see something else that they're both good at and passionate about. Now, there's some strategy or techniques, and this section can be very, very short, and it could be, you know, we could probably have 20 podcast episodes on it. But the, the practice and prep for internationals is much different than in a district meet, because you kind of start preparing when the year's done. So there's no new material. You've already covered all the material. And then there's also about two and a half months between the end of your district year and internationals. So there's also this kind of just elongated time period where you might know the material great at the end of your year, but you have to 
figure out how you're going to maintain it and enhance it over the next two and a half months, which you don't want to do in the week after your district is done, but you also don't want to put it aside for two. And so it's kind of all, it's like a weird open-ended test in that you can do as much or as little as you want in that time period. It's kind of an interesting aspect. Um, Internationals, because it takes place over four days, you quiz a, a minimum of 14 times and potentially, I haven't done it exactly, but let me see, 12, 13, 17, potentially 21 times um, for a team that makes it to finals and finals goes the distance for quizzes. So that's a ton of quizzing and it's it's quite a it's quite a difference for most people. And so working to conserve your energy is a huge deal about internationals that you don't get in a normal district meet when meets are one, two or three days. And three days is quite a rarity. And so I know at least within PNW we have a, a boot camp type practice weekend where pretty much the main goal is to quiz a ton of times so that you're tired and figuring out what you need to do to still focus when tired um, and kind of put yourself through that experience. At internationals, overall, the accuracy for everyone in sum is about 50%. So half the questions are correct and half the questions are incorrect, which is much lower than a district meet. In PNW and prelims, we're generally in the low 70% uh, for accuracy in prelims. And then it's usually mid to high 60s for both semifinals and consolations. And internationals is 50%. And that's due to the very fast jumping speed because the individuals do know the material very well. So because um, accuracy is going to be lower than most people are used to, there's there can be quite a gain that you can get from toss-ups and bonuses. So toss-ups, there's only two teams jumping, not three. And then bonuses, no one else is jumping. And... If you can be the team that is, that is in on more toss-ups and bonuses than your opponents, I think you have really good, you're going to have a really good chance because it could be the difference between you being you know, 54% in accuracy and an opponent of yours is 48%, which is a very small difference, but over um, 12 quizzes, it really adds up. Avoiding XYZs is always a goal, not just because it's nice to be in the top six, um, because that means you did really well. But there's an enormous mental and physical drain from XYZs, both while you're waiting to see if you're in XYZs, then once you know that you're in XYZs, then actually competing in it. And it's kind of almost a specter hanging over you. And so if you can avoid XYZs, um, it's just a big weight lifted that I think keeps you a lot fresher for the rest of the competition. And then also, XYZs are the last thing that happen on the third day of quizzing. They're the only thing that happens after lunch. So nine teams quiz once in three different quizzes. And then after that, everyone's done. So if you know before lunch that you have avoided XYZs, you can take off completely. You can go have lunch somewhere else. You can take off for the afternoon. And I really think that's an enormous potential advantage um, to just have that downtime and that rest. And then the other strategy, if you will, is just make it to the top nine. It really doesn't matter if you qualify first or ninth, because once you're in the top nine, all the nine teams are usually very, very comparable in quality and ability. And so seeding doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you're in quiz A, B, or C. And final nine is, it's not necessarily double elimination or single elimination, but 
it can be over very quickly. If you lose your first quiz, you're pretty much done for. Um, and if you win your first quiz, you get a lot of chances. And so um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's an incredible amount of variability in results in top nine unrelated to the actual skill level of the team. And so just if you make it to the top nine, even if you're not one of the five best teams, you have a much better chance than most competitions where there's some sort of cutoff. You know, for any major sports, for the playoffs, the last few teams in the playoffs probably have close to a 1% chance of winning the eventual title. But in quizzing, even the three, I get quote-unquote, worst teams in top nine, they could each have a 10% chance of winning, winning at all. Because I think there is a high amount of variability in semifinals. So those are some of the strategy techniques around internationals. So Scott, one of the things you were talking about is the fact that, uh, you know, before you get into the final nine, you're typically going to have uh, three days of quizzing or two and a half days, uh, you know, if you're able to bypass X, XYZs. I mean, that's got to take a toll on somebody. You know, we're, we're used to, you know, in, in uh, district level meets and even district championships, we're used to two days of, of quizzing. Uh, so three days of, or two and a half to three days of solid quizzing, that's going to take a drain on uh, everybody. So what kind of, what sort of strategies would you recommend for folks to be able to survive those two and a half to three days and then come back on the fourth day, assuming they make it into the top nine, be able to come back and actually not be completely wiped out? Because, I mean, you don't want to expend... You, you want to expend as much energy as you can to get into the final nine, but you don't want to get yourself to 100% expenditure, make it into, into the top nine, and then completely crash, right? Absolutely. So there are so many realities of internationals that are different from a normal meet that make it more difficult. Uh, did I say difficult? They're different from a normal meet that make it more difficult. So it's over four days instead of two. Um, it's, I mean, it's actually over five. You're traveling. You're often either taking a long bus fan ride or you're flying. So there's travel, which leaves people tired, different time zones. There's jet lag. It's it's always in July. So regardless of where you are in the United States or Canada, it's going to be very hot. Um, you're just out of your normal routine. You know, you're not sleeping in your own bed. You're not having the normal food that you eat. And so all of that is just makes it very, very different. But another thing I learned from coaching is that you can't decide for your team um, what their goals are or the amount of preparation or dedication that they want to put into internationals. And But I would tell them, if this is important to you to do as well as you possibly can, then you need to go to bed at a normal time. You know, Other teams might go to bed closer to 11 or 12. If you go to bed at 10, um, you're going to have a large advantage. I think we're finding from sport now that sleep is kind of an underutilized performance enhancer that's completely natural that people don't think about. But that kind of rest and recovery aspect is huge. And so if you are making sure you get sleep, um, you're going to have an advantage. If you work to stay very hydrated, you're going to have an advantage. If you don't eat a lot of um, fried food and drink a lot of soda and have a lot of dessert at meals, you're going to have an advantage. And I would tell the team, you can do, you know, you can choose to do or not do any of those things. I'm not going to um, make this like some, I don't know how to say it in a not super negative way, but I'm not going to force you to do all these things, right? This is your decision. Um, but all of those aspects can give you an enormous advantage. 
um, maximizing your nutrition, your hydration, and your sleep. And then later, we're going to get to some other things kind of in the midst of the competition that I that I think are important to conserve your energy. But, um, yeah, um, I always looked into how to combat jet lag, you know. So when you arrive at your destination, get out in the sun as much as possible, drink a ton of water, um, don't, don't take a nap, and just work really hard to get acclimated to the time zone as quickly as you can. Um, I would definitely try to have the team... Um, have downtime, do fun stuff to take your mind off quizzing. Once you're at internationals, there's very little review that you can do that is actually beneficial. I think really it's just more draining than anything else to try to spend evenings studying at all, besides you know a light run-through of your lists or quickly quoting a couple chapters, something very, very simple. But yeah, all of those aspects are things that are not really a big deal at... Um, a district meet. Now, at a district meet that's two days, you definitely see younger quizzers crash at the end of Friday night or late Saturday afternoon, um, especially if they stayed up all night at the host home. Like, you definitely see that. And I've seen really, really good quizzers within PNW get to Saturday afternoon of a district meet. And, you know, they're often one of the best couple quizzers in the district. Their team makes finals and they air out two or three times because they're just so tired at this point. And, at a district meet in finals, sure, like it doesn't doesn't matter as much. But internationals, if you have a goal to perform really well, then you're going to need to put a huge emphasis on your sleep and your recovery. So there are some rule differences in internationals this year that I think could be very interesting. The first one is by far the biggest, and it's assigned seat bonuses. So this is this was a rule years and years ago, and then we went to the jumping team bonus, and now we're back to the assigned seat bonus. And I love this because it basically puts every single quizzer on notice that you can be tested at any time on any question type. And bonuses are gimmies. You know, like, you should know the whole material on a question that no one else um, is jumping on, right? That should be 20 points or 10 points every single time. But it's not going to be. You know, even under the team jumping bonus, I think the accuracy rates were not north of 85% or um, so the teams that ha- were at 100% accuracy had a benefit over the teams that had 70% accuracy. And just and it's going to be exacerbated this year. The teams that are more well-rounded in their knowledge are going to get these bonuses. And, oh, I used to know what the average um, score was. But the average score is around 100. You know, it's not 180, 150. It's around 100. And if that's the case, then a 10-point, 20-point bonus gimme is a big deal. So um, the science bonuses is going to be a big thing, and I'm very curious to see how it goes. I think the um, analysis that people did when they were deciding whether or not to go back to a science bonuses was really cool because one of the big arguments for jumping team bonuses is it gives teams and coaches the ability to incorporate all quizzers on the team um, specifically the quizzers who are the weakest on the team. Sometimes it's just really helpful to get them going, get a question, um, and to kind of seed or step aside for, for them on those bonus questions. But if but someone had done analysis of the last couple of years at, at internationals, and the highest scoring quizzer on the team got, it was something like 90% of the bonus jumps under a team jumping bonus. And so it, it wasn't being borne out in that fashion. And so... That was kind. Of, that was interesting analysis, and I really I love the assigned seat bonuses at internationals. I didn't really give it much of a thought when I was a quizzer, um, but I think as quizzing 
you can say evolved, but I think it's teams really just got smarter about the the best way to optimize your team was specializing into question types. Because then a single quizzer could dedicate all of their hours of studying to a single question type and not have to spread it out among many question types. And the teams that did that did better. And this is kind of trying to push the pendulum back a little bit towards saying, hey, um, there's value to you know to the quizzer that works on the whole material. Um, and it's kind of slightly lessening the gain that a team can get from over-specialization, which I think, I think the change will be relatively minor, but I think in the long run it'll be a very positive thing to give quizzers a little more incentive to keep studying the whole material all the way up into internationals. So science bonuses is the first one. The question type minimums and maximums have changed, so there's going to be more quotes and finish the verses, and there's going to be fewer multiple answers for the most part. I oversimplified it, of course, but that's going to be very interesting because quotes and finish the verses, you see, I mean, probably like any question type, but you see tons and tons of variants. They're quizzers that have studied, have worked hard on lists and know them well. Um, You see quizzers that haven't but are still going to jump very, very fast. You see quizzers that know the chapters that have many verses in them, 40, 50, 60 verses, and hesitate on those and hesitate in a positive sense. You see quizzers that are jumping at the same speed on a cool question, regardless of the chapter that it is. You see quiz masters who are incredibly consistent in their reading pace. It doesn't matter if they know it's an easy quote, a hard quote, whether it's a finish of this, a finish the verse, a key moment, um, the first question of the first prelim. And then you see quiz masters who um, anticipate jumps. You know, it's question 20. It's a quote on verse 26 which they know is a hard one, and they'll speed up to finish that verse, whether consciously or unconsciously. And the, you know, all of those aspects have an impact on the competition, potentially greater than any such variances on an interrogative. So I'm interested to see how teams attack those questions. I know last year, um, all of the top teams observed as the meet went on the, that the selections of verses for finish the verses were so poor that they didn't want to jump any faster than three syllables on finish the verses, which is relatively unheard of in internationals. Those are generally go syllable and a quarter to syllable and three quarters, but there are just so many um, finish the verses that started with Jesus said, Jesus answered, that teams smartly backed off. They saw the pattern, they learned from it, and if you look in finals, you saw three teams religiously waiting for at least three syllables on finish the verses, um, and I was like seeing that, you know, even if I want better verses to be selected, it's fun to see the teams that end up in finals be the ones that recognize the test in front of them, be it a good test or a bad test, um, and adapt to it. And that's, that's something that's required. Some of the reference question language has changed a little bit so that the question a quizzer provides has to have the distinguishing reference word or phrase. Um, I'm interested to see how that goes. I don't know how much feedback I'll get since I won't be there, and it's kind of a... You have to be very specific about a situation to comment on it. <laughs> you have to know exactly what the quiz master said, what the quizzer said, and what the actual question was, but um, you have to have officials that know what they're doing to apply that correctly and to decide what the determining reference word or phrase is, and I think it's it can be very difficult. Um, and if it's applied in inconsistently, it would be a very frustrating thing for a quizzer. And then the last... The last rule difference that I have down here is the new language in the rulebook saying a question is invalid if the question is not answered. And that's really meant to deal with those positive-negative multiple answers. And usually that's how 
we've talked about them. We've called them positive, negative, multiple answers. So it's a, a multiple answer where one answer is is and the other answer is is not. But the way that this is written, there are many potential forms of questions, even interrogatives, where the question is not answered. And so I think one of the most cringeworthy for me is, let's say, he is not here is the phrase, and he is not is the chapter reference question. He is not what here? Well, even if he is, it's a valid phrase, valid chapter reference phrase. The question he is what, not here, should be invalid the way that the rule book is written because that question is not answered. The question provided asks what he is, not what he is not, which is the intent of this language. Um, so in that situation, a quizmaster should rule the quizzer incorrect for providing an invalid question. Now, I would be shocked if that situation occurs and the quizmaster does rule them incorrect just because it seems so like petty. But that's the rule as written. Um, and I'm curious to see how that goes. Um, and I'm also curious to see if a quizmaster makes an incorrect ruling in a team challenge is how that's treated. So those are some of the, the four interesting rule differences this year that will happen at international. Um, I'm hoping that it leads to a more streamlined coaches slash officials slash rules meeting. Cause I know that one of my frustrations as coach and it was shared by other coaches were that rules were decided upon at international during that meeting. And oftentimes it changed how a team would have wanted to study. Um, and it wasn't done to advantage or disadvantage any particular district, but it's just that no one really knows how certain districts prepared. And then for some, the rug was pulled out from underneath them and for others, it wasn't. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that these changes to the rule book lessen the number, lessen or eliminate the number of things decided upon in that meeting. And hopefully that meeting just becomes commentary and discussion on the rule book. And if there are concerns or complaints, that those can be evaluated for future years to be decided upon far in advance of internationals so that all districts have um, full knowledge of the rule book that will be applied once they get to international. So that's, what I'm, that's one thing I'm very hopeful for. Shall I move on to my miscellaneous category, Griffin? Yeah, I think so. Let's keep going. So this, this is kind of my... My grab bag of things. So my first thing is, I think I have some strong feelings about XYZs, and that's I think that there are misaligned incentives. So the way XYZs are designed is teams 7 through 15, so that's nine teams, compete in these three quizzes, and they have the ability to reseed themselves within 7 through 15. So your scores from your XYZ quiz are added to your total from your 12 prelims, and then those teams are kind of reshuffled based on how they did. And I think on the face of it, it makes really cool sense. You know, it says, hey, if Team 10 missed out by one point after 12 prelims, we're going to give them another shot. And you know what? We're going to put them in the quiz with Team number 9 and see who does better. I think that's really cool because you don't know when teams faced the best team in prelims. Did they face them early in prelims, late in prelims? Now, like all that kind of stuff has these little, little um, influences on how you do. But... 12 prelims, first off, is a lot, so that's more, th more than enough is maybe too strong, but it's, it's, it's a great number to actually identify the best nine teams. But I like the idea of saying, hey, in case it wasn't quite enough, we'll give one more quiz in a thoughtful, seated manner and see if teams um, can do much better or much worse than they've done so far in the 12 prelims. I think on the face of it, it sounds really cool. But what happens is if your team's 11 through if your team's 10 through 15, you are in 
Constellation A after those 12 prelims. And if you do terrible in your XYZ, you're in Constellation A. So you have literally no downside from doing terrible. Um, and also, this doesn't count for your individual average. So, like, literally, there is no downside from doing terrible in the quiz. And when you don't have that in kind of disincentive to do terrible, you get increased jumping speeds by teams who know it's not a prudence to jump at because they have different incentives than teams 7, 8, and 9 who are trying to preserve their standing. And if they throw up a one-point quiz, it does really hurt them because they will drop out of something. You know, um, humans have loss aversion. We would much rather um, not get something than lose something that we feel we have gained, even if the outcome is the exact same. Um, I think, let me give you an example. I think if you have, we would much rather just have $9 than have $12 and have someone take away three because we feel that we have lost. Even though um, if you started with zero and you were presented with these two scenarios, at the end of the day, you have $9. They should be equal. But to a human mind, we're like, you feel like you had 12 and then you lost it, right? Um, and that's very much the feeling that that is put on teams who are in seventh, eighth, or ninth. You've been through 12 prelims. You feel like you've made it or almost made it. And then you have to be in this quiz where, you, best case scenario, you're 7th, 8th, or ninth, And worst case scenario, you fall out of top nine and your chances of winning everything go from probably a decent 5, 10, 15% to zero. Um, and then a further wrench is sometimes the team in 10th is not super close to the team that's in ninth, So they're not within a point or two. They're eight points back. And 18 points is 80 points or four questions. And so those teams, not only the team in 10th that's eight points back, not only do they have a disincentive to do terrible, they have a massive incentive to do really, really awesome. And in internationals, if you're a team in 10th, 11th, 12th, you're not the best team there. Really, the only way for you to do awesome in a quiz is to just win a ton of jumps and hope that they're key. Over... Over the course of 12 prelims, if you adopt that strategy, you're going to end up with a 40%, 35% accuracy and just score poorly. But in this one-shot XYZ quiz, you have you have no downside. You know, If you win 12 jumps and you get two of them right, who cares? You're already in 10th, 11th, or 12th. You're going to be in 11th, 12th, or 13th, or 15th. It doesn't matter. But if you can score 140, 150, 180 leapfrog a team again to top nine, not only have you changed from Constellation A to consul- to semifinals, you've gone from a 0% chance of winning the title to some percent chance, but you, you've kind of given yourself this momentum because you've done really well in this quiz. And that can often um, continue into the semifinals quizzing for that team because all the competitors are high schoolers, you know? And um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not motivation, not flow, not enthusiasm, like kind of the ebb and flow of how you're doing, momentum. Like momentum is a big deal. Um, And because of how there's no disincentive for teams 10 through 15 to do poorly, um, and there's a massive incentive for them to just win a ton of jumps at at an imprudent speed, I think it's the incentives are misaligned to almost stack the deck against teams 7, 8, and 9. And because of that, I really don't like XYZ quizzing. I would be... I would be somewhat interest, more interested. Oh, and the other thing is teams 7, 8, 9 are all in different quizzes, so they don't know how each other are doing. Um, I would be interest, more interested than the three XYZ quizzes in having maybe one quiz with teams 8, 9, and 10, or one quiz with teams 
9, 10, 11, or something like that. Now, even in those scenarios, you still have the no disincentive of doing poorly for a team outside the top nine. And so I'm really not in favor of it at all. But I think either of those formats and structures would be better than what we have today. Because I think today, you might have a team that after 12 prelims, they are one of the nine best teams. And then they get passed by a team that just got lucky for one quiz. And so those are my thoughts on on XYZs. Miscellaneous topic number two is, how many points does it take to make top nine? I'm sure in, in district meets, it varies wildly. But usually, it takes... 13 or 14 team points a quiz to make top nine at a meet. At internationals, it's unbelievably consistent. It's in the nine, nine and a quarter to nine and three quarters range. So not even 10 points a quiz is almost always enough to make the top nine. I find that incredible. Um, But the other thing that that reality means is that a team is never going to be put in a bad situation by other teams jumping super fast. Again, putting aside the the luck component of jumping fast, but if another team just wants to jump super fast and probably air a lot, all you have to do is get toss-ups and bonuses and then win a quiz. It doesn't matter if you have 30 points as the winning team. Um, You're going to get 10 team points for getting first, and that's plenty in internationals um, to get every single quiz. In a district meet, if that happens, if your two opponents are just stupid jumping fast on stuff they don't know and they air a ton and you end up first with 50 points, and because of that you get 10 team points, that could actually hurt you. You know, if you're trying to average 14, 15 team points a quiz, 10 points hurts you. But when you're only trying to average 9 or 10, 10 is totally fine. And I always liked that about your nationals. There wasn't really an ability for another team to just, another team who didn't know the material well to screw you over by jumping fast. You just had to be um, more disciplined and know that 10 points was plenty. Um Now, because of that, the impact of ties can be great because I I don't recall if we always didn't break ties in prelims internationals or if that's even the case right now, but I'm pretty sure that ties are not broken in prelims, which means if two teams tie for first with like 50 points, they both get 10 team points. Um, And so in that scenario, when second place gets, you know, four, question 20 could in essence be a 70 point question or a 50 point question, something big. And those sorts of things do skew the results because if if two teams are tying for first in a quiz with 50 points, it means that something was off in that quiz. The speed was too high. It could mean that um, all the jumps were unlucky. It could de- definitely mean that. But it usually means the jumping speed was too fast or the teams in general just don't know the material well. And in those scenarios, you don't want to reward two teams with 10 points. Um, <clears throat> I already talked about the kind of, I call it the crapshoot nature of semifinals, but it's kind of the... There's a huge amount of variance in how teams do that is decently unrelated to skill. So, of course, my story is of PNW, although I'm sure this sort of story has happened to every single district at one time or another. But after prelims, PNW was fourth um, out of the nine, so we were definitely one of the stronger teams. In our first quiz, it was with the number one seed, so I think it was one, four, nine were the seeds. And we narrowly took third in that quiz. The number nine seed actually won that quiz. But we narrowly took third, you know, by 20 points or something. Well, if you take third, you're in quiz F, which you have to win. And in quiz F, we faced, like, the number two seed, who had also taken third in their first quiz. And we lost to them by 20 points or something right at the end. And so all of a sudden, losing two quizzes against good teams by 20 points, 10 points, we were out of the meet in ninth. And I think... 
<clears throat> that outcome didn't reflect how good the team was, but that's totally something that can happen in in top nine, where um, how you do in that first quiz in A, B, or C has a, hu- has a huge impact on how you do for the rest of the I would love to have data on that <clears throat> and just see um, the percent of teams that qualified for um, the for finals, like what percent of them took first in their first prelim. And I bet you it would be a crazy percentage. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Oh, this is kind of a fun one. So I've coached coached or assistant coached three different teams, been internationals twice as a quizzer, and I was a quiz master once. So I've seen a lot of quizzers. I've seen really, really good quizzers. I've seen good quizzers. I've seen bad quizzers. And one thing I've I've kind of noticed is that <clears throat> the quizzers that score the best, sure, they know the material well. I'm talking too much, Griffin. I'm losing uh, losing my voice. <laughs> yeah, you're doing great. Keep going. I'm usually a pretty quiet person, so when I'm quiz mastering at a district meet, I was end up with a drier throat than I'm used to. <clears throat> but so the the quizzers that score the best, sure, they know the material really well, but um, they often score better than other quizzers who know the material better than they do. And <clears throat> that's because the best quizzers, or, sorry, not best, the quizzers that score the best have this kind of innate ability to win good jumps. And I think it's made up of a lot of qualities and intangibles and things that are, like, hard to grasp. Um, Because you just have to have a really good sense about um, the speed of a quiz. You know, what speed do I have to jump to win this? I think you also have to be pretty brutally self-aware about how well you know the material. Uh, Because you have to know the speed to jump to win a jump. But then you have to know if you have a chance of getting a right at that speed on a given type. Um, you also have to have an ability to shake off errors. So you might win a jump at a good speed, so a speed where you expect to get it right a good percentage of the time, and it's on something that you don't know, or you make a good guess and it's the wrong guess. And I, the quizzers that score the best, just it doesn't bother them. You know, they, they judge themselves on their process, and they know their study was good enough, and their jump was good enough, and that luck didn't go their way this time, but over the long run it will. Whereas I bet you quizzers that don't score as well kind of change their jump speed a lot based on factors that they that shouldn't cause them to change their jump speed. Um, but it's tough to me because I don't know if it's something I can teach. Or, I, I mean, I could probably identify it once I see it. But it's, I don't know if it can be, how much it can be taught or enhanced. Or, um, But it's it's definitely a quality that I've noticed. Quizzers that score the best, win a lot of jumps, and by and large, they're really good jumps. Um, And often it's on stuff that most quizzers on the stage would answer correctly. But guess who won the jump? It's the quizzer that's scoring the best, right? And so um, that's an interesting observation that I made. So this next thing is kind of a pet theory of mine, and it's that it's a combination of a few factors. One is that because internationals is so long, you only have a set number of units of energy to spend on quizzing and call it a hundred units of energy. It doesn't matter what that is exactly. And sure units of energy can be added to by good sleep and good nutrition. It can be taken away by bad sleep and bad nutrition. Sure. So you need, every quizzer has some kind of allotment of energy that they can spend in internationals getting questions. I also think the amount of energy you have to spend on a question to get it right is drastically higher than at a district. So at a district meet, if you only have to spend a quarter of a unit of energy to get a question right, you need to spend like one unit of energy to get a question right internationals, like a lot more. So that's kind of one aspect 
is this, this units of energy idea and the fact that it takes a lot more energy to get a question right. And by energy, I mean the amount of focus that you have to um, expend to jump at the precise moment that you need to to see what the quiz masters in like what their mouth is doing, what the inflection of their voice is. Um, oftentimes, you're modulating your jump in very minor ways by information that is read in the question, right? From whether from the chapter number that you hear, from if you see a W or not, for all kinds of things. Um, and you need to spend a lot of energy to do that stuff well at a high level. So that's why you need to spend more energy to get a question right in international. The second bit is that um, I think the only quizzers who get questions consistently in internationals know a question type so well that they are among the maybe five best quizzers at the entire meet at that question type. If you looked at all the top quizzers, the top 10, top 15, I would be very surprised if there was any one of them that was okay at every single question type. Most of them are like, you, you just look at them and you're like, oh yeah, they got tons of CVRs, they're one of the best CVR quizzers. Or they got tons of interrogatives, they obviously knew their unique word list well. Um, and to, to be prepared at the level of a top five quizzer at a given question type requires a ton of effort. Um, and it's pretty rare for a quizzer to be able to spend that much effort preparing on more than one question type. Maybe two, um, but pretty rare to be any more than that. So you put those two things together, and the quizzers that score the best not only focused the majority of their studying time on a limited number of question types, but then they have to spend a large amount of energy to get a question, even of those types, in internationals. It really means that you shouldn't waste any of your energy jumping on questions that you're not that you don't consider yourself to be among the top five prepared for, because. Um, if you're spending less than a unit of energy on a question type, your chances of getting it right, I think, are low. If you're not one of the five best prepared at a certain type and you're jumping on that type, your chances of getting it right are low. And so in my head, I was not going to waste any amount of my energy on those question types. So I know I was going to jump on my CVRs, CRs, and multiple answers. And if I heard to finish the verse, I wouldn't necessarily sit back and sigh or something obvious like that. But I would definitely half zone out and kind of refresh my focus and make sure I was not spending any units of my precious energy allotment on that question type. Now, if you're the captain, you have to be using some amount of focus and energy to know what the other teams are saying and what the question type is and stuff like that. But I think there's a great deal to be gained from focus and optimization in your study time and how you use your energy once you're at internationals. And I think sometimes quizzers feel like they should spread their time around on different question types or, um, I don't know. Like, and sure, some of this feels like it's encouraging pure specialization. I think it's almost, which in some senses it is, but I think it's kind of an admission that it's going to be rare for a teenager to be able to spend the amount of time during a summer to learn multiple question types well enough to consistently get questions internationals. So that's one one more of my miscellaneous topics, probably one of my biggest pet theories. Let's see. I think I hit a lot of those. Um, oh, and we'll hit the last last thing in my miscellaneous column, which is different ways districts select quizzers for their internationals team. So some districts send one team, some districts send two teams, some districts send three teams. Often that depends on where the meet is. If you know financially they can drive to the meet, um, that makes it cheaper and you can take more teams. Some districts, it's just the top five 
um, by however they do their averages over the course of the year that make the internationals team. Other districts have an application process and an interview process. Some districts will kind of give the benefit of the doubt to uh, an upperclassman who might be graduating, and this is their last year to make it. Um, districts that send more than one team, sometimes they spread their quizzers around both of those teams. Other times they take their best five and put them on one team and the next five and put them on the next team. There's a lot of different ways that it's done. And um, I've only heard about the different ways year to year. It's often very hard to say like, oh yeah, this is this district's stack team and this is their B team. Um, it's very common to multiple teams from a district do very well internationals. And I think it's cool uh, to see teams do really well. They kind of take on their own identity Usually the, the teams are identified and formed by their districts pretty far in advance of their nationals, and so they get a lot of time to practice together and study together, and I think that sort of differences are cool. Um, and I think I also kind of like how you can't really tell once you're in their nationals. Um, everyone there is really into it, and they've prepared well, and they're, they're proud of making it, and I think that's a really really fun aspect of internationals. Should we hit hit a, a different type of topic or a wrap-up, Griffin? What do you think? Well, uh, we are pushing a little close to the end of our time, but I did want to give people an update on uh, the CBQZ app a little bit. We had been kind of talking about this kind of on and off the last few uh, podcasts that we were basically saying we're not going to do, or I'm not going to do a release of the, uh, a new release of the application until after internationals because i know our internationals team is using it i know there's a couple of churches that are that we're preparing to use it for uh later in the year in, in the coming uh quiz season for john uh but i mean we're still early enough that i i don't really can put them into the equation but i know that at least our group was using it for internationals there might be other groups that were using it for internationals so i didn't want to do anything that would alter their experience in cbqz until after internationals is over and we're getting close to internationals being over. Um, well, actually getting close to them uh, starting, and then after that, they'll be over. So I'm targeting a release, a, a launch date uh, for version 15. That's the next one coming up. And it's increasingly bigger and bigger because, you know, I've been, let's see, I think I've been sitting on a release now for three months or something. Uh, April, May, June. Yeah, maybe even more than three months. Um but uh, so that the, 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 the scheduled launch date for version 15 is going to be Saturday, July 21st. Uh, it's going to be a very big update. If there's going to be the biggest part of, of the whole thing, of course, is scorekeeping. Uh, before, uh, CBQZ was purely for uh, quiz masters and there was also an answer judge uh, material section. So you could pull up just the material and, and do quick lookups and that sort of stuff for answer judging. But now uh, in version 15, once it gets launched, July 21st, there's going to be scorekeeping uh, uh, in native into the app. And of course, with scorekeeping, that means there needs uh, statistics reporting. And so that's going to be available. There's also a whole host of sort of like other smaller features that kind of come into play as well. So one of the big ones is uh, question set importing and exporting. So if you like to write your questions in Excel and then you just want to dump them into CBQZ, uh, you can do that. You could even write your questions in Excel, dump them into CBQZ, do some editing and some verification and export them again, throw them around other places. So all of that functionality is available. There's also additional features around question set sharing. Uh, so like if you have sort of, sort of the generic 
or, or sort of the default experience is, uh, you know, somebody gets a user account, logs in, creates for themselves a question set, start, starts writing questions and then running quizzes off of that question set. But in some cases, you might have, say, a question writer in your district or at your church or whatever. And you say, like, oh, well, so-and-so is going to write the questions and other folks will then use them in quizzes, either in practices or at meets or something along these lines. So there's some additional features in version 14 around question set sharing, where if you have multiple authors, say, working together on a single question set, one of them is that uh, the marked questions in a shared set includes now a reference to the author who ended up marking the question. So if you have, say, a shared question set amongst quiz masters at a quiz meet, and one of them encounters a question that they're kind of like, eh, I, don't, I don't think this is valid, or I want to pull it out of the question pool or something like that, they can mark it for edit like a coach would at a, at a, at a practice. But in a quiz, you may not necessarily write the most verbose explanation as to why you're marking the question. You may just be like, it's bad and hit enter and move on very quickly. Uh, so marking these uh, marked for edit uh, questions with uh, somebody's initials uh, gives a little bit of an indication to somebody later on who's maintaining the set to say, say like, oh, I, Scott marked this is bad, but he didn't give me a, a reason why I should go follow up with Scott and find out what he was talking about. They, these sorts of things. Um, you can also do like multiple people marking up the same question multiple different ways with different messages. Uh, that's also possible, things like that. And notes and, and so forth are all part of it. There's also a uh, customization feature. So this kind of came out of something that, uh, I, I don't know, Scott, I think you re initially requested this. Uh, but I think it also came out of maybe the Great West, in the, uh, maybe it was Great West practice, and then it was also internationals. But the idea to be able to customize question set type selections when you're doing practices. Uh, but then in version 15, so in other words, I should back up for a second. What that means basically is if you want to do like, I want to do nothing but a multiple answer question uh, quiz, this quiz, or I want to do multiple answers and references only or whatever. Uh, you have the ability to mark those up and change those around and alter how question types are selected in addition to the material selection. Well, that's, uh, that's done per user there in version 15 there's a remembered customization of that. So if you go in and edit your uh, how you want that to be pulled together, uh, CBQZ will remember that for your user and present you with the option of doing that. And of course, at any particular time, there's a nice little reset button that'll reset you back to a per district standard. And that leads me to sort of the next big piece of functionality in version 15 is there's lots and lots of uh, what you would call, uh, let's say district level customization. So, and, it, and it's, and it's rather profound. I've tried to be as flexible as possible within the app as possible. So the idea being that I think we've got it to a point now where you could actually run non CMA quizzing through CBQZ and everything will work correctly in terms of question types, distributions, in terms of how rules happen, in terms of scorekeeping, uh, the points that are allocated, all of that is customizable at the district level. So even if you're running, say, a CMA uh, uh, program at a district level, but you want to use an, a wildly different set of rules, uh, CBQZ can be customized uh, to allow you to be able to do that at your particular district. And of course, you know, if you want to split your districts into different, re uh, you know, sub regions within a district and have different rule sets or something, all of that is entirely possible. And then, uh, of course, there's a, a long list of improved uh, UI and UX bits. 
uh, in terms of, you know, different hotkeys and, and so forth. I love visual interfaces and moving the mouse around and so forth. But when you're sitting in a quiz, sometimes it's just a whole lot faster to hit a hotkey on the keyboard or a keyboard combination to be able to do things in the app. And so there's a lot more of that functionality that's being included. And all of that is sitting in wait, uh, waiting for July 21st to launch out into the universe. So stay tuned. I'm sure, you know, the first podcast after the 21st, I'm going to be uh, freaking out and asking everybody to go test it and make sure that we're going to bang out all the, uh, figure out all where all the bugs are uh, before the beginning of the uh, the next quiz season. That's awesome, Griffin. Are you? Are you throwing a launch party? Uh, I don't know if I'm going to throw a launch party. Um, I think I'm just going to launch the thing because it's going to, um, I, I mean, a lot of it is theoretically, it's going to be a fairly straightforward launch uh, based on the, the tooling that I have around it. But once it's launched, I'm going to spend, you know, a couple hours just trying to regress every bit of functionality in production as I can, uh, just to make sure that everything is, is working just fine. And I think after that, I'm going to go watch a movie and just try to think about anything non-technical for a while. You could invite uh, 12 quizzers who are starting on John over to your house and then run a faux or a fake quiz meet for the afternoon. I could do that. I wonder <laughs> I wonder who would be willing to commute to my house for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, getting 12 quizzers probably would be difficult. You could probably get... Um, a few very enthusiastic ones. Yeah, well, 12 quizzers in July, right? The the, the third weekend of July, uh, it, it seems like a little uh, little bit of a non-trivial ask. But, you know, it's always out there. So, okay, so there, there's, the, there's the thing. Anybody listening to the podcast who wants to come over and, and play around with the app, uh, uh, shoot us an email at iq at cbpz.org. Uh, and speaking of which, if you have any questions about anything uh, related to CBPZ or to uh, re- regarding internationals, uh, anything that, that Scott was talking about uh, with going through all of his strategies and ideas and history and so forth, please email us at iq at cbpz.org and follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. And I think that's a wrap. Uh, thanks, Scott. Thanks, everyone. Happy studying. Happy listening. Thanks all. Bye. Bye.